And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. This is the first in our four-week Solidarity Breakfast summer season. This is when we go back and listen to some of the great programming we have had access to over the year, looking at the past, present and possible futures as we stand on the countdown to a new year. Today, we remember the passing of the great class hero Jack Mundy, mourn the passing of a young Aboriginal man and remember the ongoing struggle for justice for First Nations people in this country. We hear some gentle comedy from the recent Green Left Performance Night and revisit the Julian Assange case as we hear that the English Appeals Court have allowed the US extradition order. The fight continues. Oh, wow! I got summer programming by 3CR for Christmas. 3CR, 8.55am. A state memorial was held at Sydney Town Hall on the 10th of March 2021 for Jack Mundy, AO. My name is Vivian Langford and I was there for Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. The green bands imposed on heritage buildings and bushland in Sydney were a glorious moment and the idea was copied around the world. We start with the voice of Jack Mundy himself in 2003. It's an archival record from the city of Sydney and we thank Siobhan McHugh who made this recording. Of course the Vietnam War, the, war, the, the fight against the A&H bombs, the left-wing unions have a rich tradition in this country of fighting for things. But the builders' labourers went a bit further in the sense that when the women... I'd made a statement that in a modern society, unions should have the right to be concerned about the end result of their labour, that things wider than wages and conditions were important, that, of course, whatever unions exist, wages and conditions are of paramount importance, but increasingly, what is the good of winning higher wages and better conditions if we live in cities devoid of parks denuded of trees? And the quality of life was not just a cliché, it's a reality. And strangely enough, at that time, A.V. Jennings, a Melbourne-based development company, had moved in and bought land in the fashionable suburb of Hunters Hill with the idea of building luxurious units, apartments for the very rich. And the people in that area uh, rose up against it and had a couple of meetings. And the driving force, force was a group called the Battlers for Kelly's Bush. And they were all women, middle, upper class women. And as a very last resort, they came to the builders' labour on the basis of things that I'd said about the importance of the environment. And uh, we went out there and uh, spoke to the people. 
And we said to them, well, if you can show that it's not just a handful of people, but it is the feeling of the people in Hunters Hill, we will take it back to the union. So they had a meeting, over 600 people came to it, and the women came back to the union leadership and spoke. And it was interesting, when they'd left, some of the builders, labourers on the executive said, Jesus Christ, what are we doing? We haven't even got a member in Hunters Hill, let alone, you know. Others of us argued that whether it's Liverpool, Penrith or Willara, if we're fair dinkum, about open space being necessary, and they had a valid argument, we should support them. A.V. Jennings announced that they would ignore the ban and use non-union labour. And at the time, we had, as I told you before, we had won the confidence of the workers. Over 90% of all workers carrying out builders' labourers' work were in a union. And the work we covered from unskilled work, uh, doing the footings, digging, doing the concreting, doing the steel work, going up high on the building with riggers and scaffolders, but all of that work was covered by builders' labourers. <clears throat> so when it came to bans, we had a lot of bargaining power, whether commencement of buildings or whether stopping the demolition of buildings. So we had enormous power. And at the time, there were something like 11 unions in the building industry from all the different trades had their own unions. And the builders' labourers, of course, was an amorphous group that stretches from the skilled to the unskilled. And so we had a lot of power and the union was very strong. And so we responded by calling a meeting on one of A.V. Jennings' jobs in North Sydney. And the workers decided that if one blade of grass or one tree was touched on Kelly's Bush, that half-completed building would remain forever as a monument to Kelly's Bush. And that really set the cat amongst the pigeons. Uh, and uh, after, of course, we put the ban on, uh, it was called a black ban, because uh, a black ban has connotations of workers uh, jacking up jobs to lift their wages and conditions. But later on, and I think this was a turning point, when we called them green bands, it had a more noble argument. We were there, we weren't, we weren't just trying to increase the wage and condition of the workers. We were looking on a wider angle at the quality of life issues. And who thought of the, the word green band? Me, Jack. Good on you. Give me something, you know. <laughs> So, but I think it was it was it was more uh, reflective of what we were doing. As I went along the line outside the town hall of very dignified people waiting to go in to celebrate the life of Jack Mundy, I learned that his legacy was not just in the buildings of the Rocks area, in Kelly's Bush, and in the old churches and parts of Sydney's heritage that were. Per- preserved by the Builders' Labourers' Federation. People remembered his personal legacy of generosity, solidarity and inclusiveness as he expanded the horizons of the unions beyond their work uh, conditions and wages to creating the sort of society that we all would like to live in. We need uh, a Jack Mundy as he was then, as he remained... He never changed, was still fighting. I was on Parramatta Council until 2008. Jack would be on the phone to me regularly talking about saving buildings and he'd be well and truly in the fight for Willow Grove. This brings back memories of 1969, I was about 17 years old. Uh, 
Jack had lived in Guildford, like most great people. And uh, there was down the local pub, there was a rank-and-file uh, fundraiser. And there were so many of people who worked in the industry who were there that night. And I was a young kid and I was great. But uh, his contribution, both the environment and the broader political thing, the union movement, uh, the whole democratisation of unions, uh, it's, it's so crucial. Yeah. Do you think it's got harder to do that sort of thing, like green bands now? Do you think it's harder? Why? Well, the workforce is... Uh, um, the workforce is now splintered. There's not large factories. There's not union strength. There's not solidarity. There's not people reinforcing each other. It's very difficult. And uh, people are on higher purchase, mortgages, etc. Uh, the, there are great impediments to struggle, and and uh, we're in far more difficult now for him. Yeah. I think Jack was a legend in New South Wales, uh, and I think it's interesting that his uh, his notoriety and the work that he did around green bands and leading some of that uh, protection now of our history has resonated with young people and they love him like us oldies. We can still go to the buildings, can't we, and the places? Well, we can, and that's what's so enjoyable to go past and he definitely deserves recognition today and more than that. And I'm pleased to see that there's going to be a film that will, I hope, do justice to what he's done. But he's done a lot for this city, a lot. Hi, I only met him once and he was so welcoming and really keen for the next generation to continue with what he'd done. About Jack Mundy's legacy, if he was here today, a young man again, would it be harder now to do green bands and why? Well, I was lucky enough to hear him speaking at a forum about 20 years ago when he addressed this very issue, and back then he said it would be much harder. So it could only be even worse now with the awful industrial laws that we have in this country, which don't permit secondary boycotts and community action of that kind. What, what is your memory of him or your legacy that he's... I was very lucky to work for the CFMEU uh, about 20, uh, 10 to 20 years ago, getting to meet him and going to see the Kelly's Bush uh, women. I went to the lunch 30 years ago with Jack, so that's my memory. Jack was a great man, and I worked for Jack as, to, as an organiser when he was a secretary of the union. And uh, he did all everything uh, dem- democratically, and... Uh, and gave everybody uh, an opportunity, not like we have today. Jack Mundy was an ecological socialist till his dying day. He was uh, always supporting people to take action, uh, encouraging people. Uh, So he he strongly advocated unity uh, in the society for that. And uh, I think he wasn't despairing when I think about how he approached things. He had enormous confidence in people, and I think that's come from his brilliant experience in the builders' labourers. You know, from the 1950s through to now. So uh, I think Sydney's really blessed by having that heritage and uh, let's celebrate it today. I see Jack Mundy in the buildings every time I go into certain buildings. I know it was because of the bands that he was part of, that they're there. But what about culturally, you know, in our minds? Because it's so hard now to protest, to do anything. And uh, the developers seem to have taken over just as well as these little old buildings that are here. What culturally do you think is left? Well, I think we have got a lot of our cityscape 
and some of our landscape because of the builders, labourers and Jack Mundy. And I think we should always uh, encourage people to recognise that when they open their eyes and move around uh, New South Wales and the city. But uh, in the culture, obviously we've got a, a completely rapacious government that's actually slogan is, uh, you know, New South Wales, a new state of business. It's not, not a state of people. So, you know, that's, I think that's what Jack was referring to, that it's, you know, much harder now. But that doesn't mean it's impossible. The people can really change everything, and Jack knew that. Uh, so Amanda Tattersall, Jack Money's legacy is both ginormous and incredibly intimate, and I think that that's what was so powerful about him. He actually carried his values and his politics to every scale of his life. So obviously, like, we look down the streets of Sydney and it wouldn't look quite like this but for Jack Mundy. You know, he had he literally physically transformed the city through his radical conception of unionism and its connection to the natural environment. You know, it's just extraordinary and it lives in me today with how I work in the climate movement. You know, I'm working on, on trying to make that connection between economics and climate too. But it's also really personal. Jack was a really kind and generous person. Whenever I asked him to speak at anything, he would come. He spoke to students I was teaching. He spoke to the Sydney Alliance as we were setting up. He wrote a squib on my book. He just always said yes because he actually just really loved people and cared for people, which is fundamental to his his values. In terms of how it would be different today, so I think Jack Mundy would be leading the climate transition. He would be front and centre in regional communities trying to work out how working class people can help lead a response to climate change that allows them to have a sense of control over their economic, social and cultural life and not be taken advantage of by the big developers of today, which is the fossil fuel companies. And so I think it would be different. I think the places in which he would be fighting would be different. But the idea of a unified struggle between, as he said, the working class and the enlightened middle class would remain the same. I think the world is extremely poorer because of Jack's death and the values that he stood up for. Yeah, they seemed really vague and fragmented at the moment, yeah. What would you say lives on in the culture? I know the buildings are here, but in the culture, like in all of our memories, there's a certain type of being, isn't there? Yeah, I think that's what I'm talking about, the cultures. The buildings, I don't really... Uh, they're not relevant for me but I think I think in people's hearts I think having prophets of our time is really important and I think Jack was a prophet of our time and he challenged the inequities in our society and stood up for the working person I think that does live on yeah oh look Jack was a remarkable person and a remarkable figure for uh, Sydney and Australia and the world and I, I mean I think he brought a new way of thinking about the future of a kind of ecological socialism that gave great hope and inspired millions of people in one way or another. It's, it was a real privilege that uh, he was in our community and in our city um, and touched the world the way he did. Look, I, I was lucky to know Jack later in his life and I think it was incredible how generous he was, even with all the things that happen when you're older and when his health was failing him. He was always there and solid, inspiring new generation of 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 30-year-olds, telling them about how they could be involved in a politics that was about people and generosity and not just power and elites. He's, everybody has been saying to me, look, um, he never gave up and he was kind and he was generous. He, he would come to anything if you invited him to speak or so on. But he himself said, 
on the archival recordings I've heard, you know, it's just so much harder now. You know, what we're up against is harder. And especially with the climate change issue, you know, I'm sure people have said he'd be front and centre of that if he was with us today. What do you think's changed that's making it hard? Do you agree that it's harder or it's always just the same battle? I think the scale of our wealth and also the scale of the catastrophe make those two things very hard, shaking people into action when when actually we are much more comfortable and wealthy than we were when Jack was a younger activist. Um, But then faced with the scale of catastrophe that is so urgent, yes, that is harder, but... You know, days like today remind you that um, we've got to be part of that challenge. Nothing's going to change. Thank you. What's your memory? Uh, my family, um, the company, James, uh, I'm Amelina. Uh, my family's company with my mother and her brothers, my uncles, were the developers that wanted to um, destroy the rocks. And uh, I'm very grateful to Jack Mundy um, that the rocks were saved and my generation, my siblings and my cousins um, all support Jack Mundy and the work and we're grateful very grateful for his heritage work Yeah. Thank you for that comment because it just shows that we all can change, doesn't it? Yes, yeah Oh look, I'm just devastated, I'm from down Union Shellhaven and that, and um, Jack my father held him in such esteem. My father's 86. He's up in Cross Harbour. He couldn't make it today because of ill health. We're a massive union family, and Jack was like a hero in the Forge generations. How yeah. did he inspire you? Like, what did he stick by? Well, I was 16 when I joined the Commonwealth Bank, and I was in the head office. And the first day, I said, I want to sign up for the union. And I was on the fifth floor, and they said, What? And I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And I worked with all you know, the bosses of you know, lending in that, in that day. And they said, why? I said, because I want my rights. And so that sort of didn't go down too well. But that's what I did. And it's inspired me from then to sort of um, want a fair go for sort of everybody. So I'm involved with Union Shellhaven. And only the other night... We were talking at our Union Shellhaven meeting about um, we have 26-27% youth unemployment and the young kids there, because they have involved with Vincentia High School and they're so desperate for part-time work. You know, they're working for $12, $15 an hour. You know, so it's um, people like Jack trying to, you know, early on get workers' rights. It's kids like that who we're trying to, you know, get involved and join a union, but they're so desperate for their um, part-time work to be able to afford to go to uni that we have to turn them around and get them to join a union. And Jack sort of, you know, fought for those things. And so we were educated at a young age by my father, Bill Hark, who's up there today, hoping to watch his on live stream. Jack was an inspiration to all of us because of his socialist politics and his environmentalism. And a lot of things in Sydney, Centennial Park, all the old buildings, Kelly's Bush would not be here if it hadn't been for Jack and the people he worked with together. Well, I mean, the green bands were historic and they inspired green bands all over the... in the rest of Australia and all over the world. And I think it was historic that he brought together the union movement and the environment movement to struggle together. 
uh, for a better future. My name's Rachel Evans and I met Jack Mundy when I first arrived here in Sydney around 2003. I, I heard about his legacy and I went to visit him and his home and got him to sign a Green Left. So I'm a journalist with Green Left and the thing that really inspired me because was very involved in the marriage equality campaign was the pink bands. But finding out about the green bands, the black bands, the pink bands and and, you know, this was seminal and trailblazing, and he's an amazing man. The other thing that we did with Jack was we helped the campaign to save Sydney College of the Arts in Callan Park, and so we occupied there for 65 days, and he came to visit. And so it was a fantastic, you know, lots of art students and, um, and also the Maritime Union of Australia, they were very involved. But, yeah, capitalism is voracious and it's privatising everything and all the green spaces in the... Even the suburbs are being transformed by these horror large apartment blocks. And so the green ban example is really important for the modern day. And we're involved now in a fight to, to save Glebe and Everly public housing. And that fight, we hope, is going to involve a green ban. So, yeah, and now there's a green ban against Willow Grove's demolition. So it's actually what, what he's done. And he's a, he was a communist. And that's the other thing that's really important about his legacy to remember and ingest, um, that he was an anti-capitalist and he was organising with working people and the poor to make the change, the grassroots organising that makes the change that we need. So... And it's a new world. Actually, Bondi Pavilion was another fight he spoke there. So for the young generation and the middle-aged generation, which I'm part of, we, we, need, to, we need to learn the lessons of uh, Jack Mundy's legacy and then we, to really, really, really pay tribute, we've got, a, we've got a fight to win and win.
guaranteed to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org. You're with Annie on the first of Solidarity Breakfast summer season. More than 30 years ago, this country recognised through a royal commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody that there was a deep racism in the lifeblood of this place. The deaths have continued despite the mirror being held to the face of the collective consciousness. We mark the passing of one such person with a press conference held by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service this year for Noel Raymond lest we forget. We're here for a media conference held by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Jodhua Foundation and the family of Raymond Knoll on the last day of the coronial inquest on the 2nd of July 2021. Raymond died in 2017. Raymond was a proud Gunai, Gunajamara and Rajri man. Raymond Knoll was a gentle giant who loved his family Ray died in a police chase that began when he was driving home from a Sunday night dessert run from his local supermarket. The family are calling for justice and change. Between 1989 and 2017, Aboriginal people made up 22% of all police pursuit deaths, the highest rate of overrepresentation of Aboriginal killings in any form of custody. Through this most painful of processes, the dignity, the courage, the strength of the Thomas family is very moving indeed, and we hope that they will find some solace through this coronial inquest. For four years, Raymond Noel Lindsay Thomas's family has wanted and waited for answers. For four years, they've advocated for Raymond Noel for justice for accountability for his tragic death and the hope that no other family should feel the sorrow and grief that they've had to endure and indeed will continue to endure for the rest of their lives. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here, everybody. Thank you to everybody who supported us over these last two weeks. Very stressful and traumatic time. Uh, as we seek the answers to to what happened to our son. Yeah, Raymond Noel was a, an absolutely beautiful, kind-hearted person. He had a beautiful nature, and he's very protective of his family and friends and community. Whenever he, he walked into a room, he'd light it up because he was, he was six foot eight, so he, he really stood out and uh, he's affectionately referred to in the and the family and community as a, a gentle giant. Mm. He is deeply missed by us, of course, the family and, and extended family and the community in Melbourne. His brothers are absolutely devastated. They were really close. And he, he was, now he, there's a missing link with him being gone. This hole in our heart will never heal. We there forever. I can't describe the impact that it has on Debbie. His mother, her grief is different to that of mine being the father. It's more deeper because she's the one that carried him for nine months and brought him into this world. 
and I thank her for that. We want those responsible to be held accountable and for them to realise the grief and trauma that they have caused through their actions in the pursuit on that night. For something as minor as just an unregistered car, that, that is not a crime. Raymond was not a criminal. He wasn't drunk. He wasn't high on drugs or anything. He just, he just drove to the shops that night and um, to buy some chocolate and cake mix on that Sunday night. And uh, they decided to pursue based on the fact that it was just an unregistered car. No, no crime had been committed. We demand justice for Raymond and hope for changes of the police pursuit policies so this doesn't happen to any other family to suffer the, the pain and suffering that we're going through and we'll, we'll go through for the rest of our lives. The process of this inquest and hearing the facts, especially from the eyewitnesses, has helped me deeply as, as it is now clear in my mind what actually happened on that night. And I, I could just imagine the fear that Raymond must have been experiencing that night right up until the very tragic end. I would like to thank Coroner Ollie and the court staff, Troy Williamson, our legal team, Tony and Joel, the family and the supporters who have been here throughout this whole process. It means a lot to us that, that you're here with us, standing with us, seeking justice for Raymond. Jadawa Foundation, absolutely magnificent what they do and their support for families in, in these situations and, and what we go through. And last but not least is FALS, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Thank you. I'd also like to introduce yeah, April Day um, to also share some of her thoughts as well. Um, I would first want to thank everybody for being here this past fortnight to support Uncle Ray and Honey Debbie and the family. Um, it's been an extremely difficult time for them um, and myself know how grueling the coronial process is. Um, you know, Ray was a beautiful man and gentle giant and um, an unregistered vehicle should never be a death sentence. Um, what we've seen here during the coronial inquest is how flawed the police investigations is once again um, and how conflicting uh, the statements have been from police to actually what happened from the witness accounts. It was extremely disappointing to see that uh, Victoria Police had decided to bring uh, uniformed police officers here on Wednesday while the family are grieving and are only trying to seek questions, uh, answers uh, to what happened to their son. It has only perpetrated more violence on this family and has caused more harm and grief. Um, I guess what we take here from his um, shows how beautiful Ray is from his family statements and how um, simply being an Aboriginal man in this country is dangerous. Um, thank you and I hope you continue to support the Raymond Knowles family. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. 
well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family. It's how you care about your cousins. And it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the Three CR website or on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR. You're with Annie on the first program in the Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season and as promised, a little gentle comedy from James Warren who performed at the fundraising event for the Green Leaf Weekly recently. So our next performer tonight is James Warren. James has has been described as having a dry delivery, utterly endearing, never fails to land by the Australian Arts Review. James G. Warren is a sweet young man from Hobart He is a connoisseur of good jokes, good friends and broccoli. My kids would not love you. James is the amazing cannibal flowers token straight white man. Thank you, James. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Do you ever learn a new word? and suddenly it's ubiquitous? <laughs> Happens sometimes, doesn't it? Um, this may surprise you, but I actually earn my living on the streets. I'm, I'm very familiar with back streets, back alleys, courts, cul-de-sacs, because that mail's not going to deliver itself, you know? I've got to... I'm a postman, I've got to get in there, I've got to deliver the mail. That's how I make my money. I, I've got the skills to deliver the bills. If you've, if you've ever had a bill, that's just me trying to pay my bills, you know? So sorry about that. But um, that's, that's something people say to you on the street all the time. They say, oh, you can, you can keep hold of those bills, you can send them back, mate. No, I can't, I really can't. You have to have your bills. So... It's fun being a postman. I, um, I, I moved here from, from Hobart about three years ago. I just, I just wanted to do comedy. And it was, it was surprisingly easy to get into that job, actually. Um, I was just out of an arts degree. I had no work experience whatsoever. But I had to, and I just wanted to do comedy, but I had to start thinking, you know, what sort of, what sort of job am I going to do? Let's see. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I have a smooth delivery. I like to push the envelope, and, I, and I'm a man of letters. What sort of job should I do? And look where I ended up. Uh, it was a, they, I think they let me in too easy, really. I mean, the, the, I remember the second question on the job interview to become a postie was, describe your experience with push bikes. <laughs> in that voice as well. Describe your experience with push bikes. I've, I've definitely had rougher job interviews, I can tell you that. <laughs> Made me think, well... I could have been doing this job when I was 10 years old, I guess, so, yeah. Let me just pause to gather my thoughts. Um, 
I was um, this one time at university. Who's who's been to university? We're, we're educated people, nice. Uh, what was the, what was the the longest essay that you had to do? How many words was the the longest essay you had to do? Two thousand five hundred. Can anyone beat two thousand five hundred? Three thousand. Three thousand in the back. What what do you say over here? Ten thousand. Okay, stop getting competitive. We don't need to get competitive. It's all right. See, get degrees. We've all got degrees. Um, yeah, for any for any people who have gone uni, gone to uni yet, see, get degrees. That's uh, my mum's my mum's catchphrase, which she could have been a bit more encouraging. But anyway, um, I don't mean. So I didn't mean to incite any competitiveness there. I, all I meant to say is, I think the highest I ever did was four thousand words. And I remember because uh, this one year I had to do four thousand word essay. And I had it in four pictures, and it didn't quite work out. I don't, I don't, want, I don't know what happened there. I can't, I can't tell you where I went wrong there, because I'm pretty sure a picture speaks of that. No, it, it didn't. It's just a waste of time. It was just a real waste of time. I could have done, could have done way better. I don't think words get respect, enough respect, because you always have these of sayings, people say, oh, a picture speaks a thousand words, or you might have heard, um, you know, actions speak louder than words. 93% of communication is nonverbal, apparently. All right there, man. All right. Now say all of that again without words. Exactly. Try that. Uh, here's, here's a word thing you might like. Um, I have a superpower. We were talking about superpowers before. I actually have one. It only, but it only activates when I have to look after children. Supervision. <laughs> I got supervision. <laughs> applause from the back, thank you very much. I feel silly sometimes, I feel silly. Like um, when, I was a, when I was a kid, my dad told me that the moon is not made of cheese. Can you believe that? The moon's not made of cheese? <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know. I mean, what had I been, li living under a rock my whole life? Yes, the moon. I've, I've been living in Tassie, <laughs> and I've been living under a rock. And if you and if you hadn't heard that the moon's a rock by now, I mean, have you been living under a cheese your whole life? I like that joke. I like that joke. Um, about now is I'm um, I'm actually getting to about ten months sober, around about now. Ten months sober. Thank you, thank you. I was no, it's all right. I was I was never an alcoholic or anything. I just figured out that it's a good way to get rounds of applause. Um, and when you're, when you're a comedian, sometimes you really need a round of applause so you can just bring that out. All you have to do is not drink. In some circles, you get cheered for, for drinking, for drinking a lot, but it's more economical, I find, to drink nothing at all. It's nice. Um, yeah, people think, um, people think it's boring, though. They say, oh, sobriety is boring. Oh, sobriety is boring. I think, you know, oh, no good story ever starts with a good cup of tea. No, ever, no good story ever starts with a cup of tea. I think drug stories are boring. Every drug story, if you've, if you've got one of these friends, I went to school with one of these friends, every drug story is, oh, mate, oh, I can't believe I got home. Oh, oh, it was a miracle I got home from that night, mate. Oh, I can't believe I got home. Like, mate, I don't know what to tell you. It's, I go home all the time. It's really quite easy and simple. 
and you should be able to do it and it shouldn't be a story. <laughs> oh, I got home, I got home. Yeah, me too, mate. I go home every day. I used to, when I first started drinking, I, I would um, show up to parties, and this is a bad sign. Um, people would say, oh, here he comes. Can't wait to see drunk James G. Can't wait to see drunk James G. Get some, get some beers into you, get drunk. I can't wait to see you when you're drunk. Which is it's not a real compliment when you think about it, is it? It's not much of a compliment at all. Oh, I love drunk you. Oh, thank you. No, 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 not you. You're better when your brain does not work. In fact, the closer to unconscious you are, the more I like you. It's not a good sign at all. It's no good at all. Um, who here eats porridge for breakfast? That was very enthusiastic for someone who eats porridge for breakfast. Um, you've got to spice it up, you've got to spice it up, I think. Because, um, see, when I, was, when I first moved out, I was trying to be very economical. Uh, I had the most depressing recipe for porridge. Oh, it was, I can't eat porridge anymore because of this recipe. It was, um, if you want to know the recipe, I'll, I'll tell you. It was, it was home brand oats in a bowl, tap water, and you'd put that in a microwave for about three minutes. Yeah, I know, it's gross, isn't it? It sounds more like, a, you know, oats, water, radiation. That, that's not breakfast. That's not breakfast at all. It sounds more like a, a Soviet recipe for concrete than a recipe for breakfast. But that's what I was eating. Now I can't eat porridge. Porridge taught me that it's not enough to just sustain your life. You've got to sustain your will to live as well. So <laughs> that's why I'm now quite a big fan of cinnamon. Love cinnamon. Um, porridge. Who here's got a slow cooker? No? Yeah, some, some people. It's fantastic, isn't it? You would agree with me that everyone here should get a slow cooker. Isn't it? it it's so great. Curry is amazing in a slow cooker. It, it's so good. You come, you, listen to me. Exactly. You, you come home after a long, hard day thinking, hmm, who's been cooking? <laughs> oh, yeah, me. That's my dinner. That's my dinner. My dinner's ready. My wife knew exactly what I wanted for dinner because I am my wife. <laughs> At 8 o'clock in the morning making dinner, that was me. That was my wife. That was me. I love my wife. It might smell like someone loves me in here, but it's just me. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll finish up on, on this. Um, it, is, it is actually hard being like this, you know. It's hard being straight, white, young, male educated, atheist, healthy, kind of handsome and still unsuccessful because, because you know it's your fault. It's absolutely your fault. There's no way to explain it other than you have not done enough work. You know that. You get to know that at the core of your being. What a thing to live with, you know? What a thing to live with. And I really might have to live with it, you know, because my life expectancy is great. <laughs> you guys have been great. Enjoy your night. See you later.
My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. It has just been announced that the English Court of Appeal has accepted the US assurances that Julian Assange will not be under threat if extradited to the US and have agreed he can be extradited to the US. Now, for anyone who has been following the case of an Australian journalist being held in maximum security as if a terrorist by publishing evidence of US war crimes, a shiver will have gripped you on the news. Today, we are going to go back to part of an interview between Mary Costakitis and one of Julian Assange's lawyers, Jenny Robinson, arranged as a briefing for his fellow MEAA members in late October 2020, just before the first decision made by the English court that extradition to the US was liable to be a death sentence for Julian. England has a standing commitment not to send people to a certain death in extradition cases. This interview outlines the political nature of the original case against Julian Assange, the lack of due process shown by the US legal team and ultimately the basic untrustworthiness of the US assurances that the sentence will probably only be three to six years, not 175 years, and not in a system which isolates Julian Assange from his supporters. The first, on the first day of the February hearing, something highly significant occurred 
while the prosecutor told journalists that this had nothing to do with journalism. When the judge asked, well, without the conspiracy to commit intrusion charge, would receiving and publishing be a crime? And he obfuscated, but eventually had to say yes. Now that should have rung alarm bells all around the world of journalism and generated headlines, but that didn't happen. Several times during the September hearings, the prosecutor repeated that the US government has never said that it will not prosecute journalists, abandoning the February fig leaf altogether, but no one batted an eyelid again. I think we should all be very, very worried. Journalists and media organisations should be outraged about attempts to lock up Assange in inhumane conditions for the rest of his life. Otherwise, we're abrogating our responsibility towards each other, towards future generations of journalists and towards our role in a democracy. Much was revealed and astonishing things occurred during the hearings. And I'm going to leave it to Jennifer to um, uncover some of that uh, later. But in a court of public opinion, the US came out looking very bad indeed in these hearings. And Assange would not be extradited, but the public didn't see and hear the testimony of 35 powerful witnesses under cross-examination. The collective relief of those of us who know and care about the man, the human being, was immense. To hear people of the calibre of Dan Ellsberg and many people, many um, acclaimed in investigative journalists from all over the world, speak about the Julian that we recognise rather than the one generally that's generally been portrayed in the media. Um, speak about him with respect and admiration for his ideals and principles and his meticulous approach to his work, in particular with respect to the protection of the identity of people named in documents and his insistence on rigorous redactions. Now, some just a few remarks about the process and the challenges facing um, uh, journalists uh, reporting on the hearings. The hearings went for four weeks. They started at about 7pm Sydney time and they ran till about 1.30 or 2am. I tried to provide a contemporaneous report by live tweeting proceedings as much in as much detail as possible, uh, which was very challenging because of the time zone, the intensity of the task, but made all the more difficult because of the audience problems. Um, it was the first time that the Justice Department were facilitating this remote observation and it was mired uh, by technical difficulties, connectivity issues that caused delays, but very significant audio problems when many witnesses sounded like they were speaking in an underwater echo chamber. Um, you had to strain to hear and you had to infer some of the times, which is quite dangerous. This resulted in discrepancies in reporting. For example, judge made comments about the impact of the US election on her judgment, or was it the timing of her judgment? Uh, we reported that differently. Um, I used the downtime to make um, observations. I was conscious that I was being the eyes and ears of some members of the public who were not permitted to observe. And I wanted them to feel that they were watching this unfolding in all its complexity and to get a sense of the elements of tragedy, of farce and of moments of great tension to allow them to be astonished when I was. 
Now, no mainstream media outlet gave the case the time or the space required to cover the fundamentally important issues and evidence, much of which contradicted what's been reported about Assange for many years. The cancellation of human rights and other international monitors moments before the hearing without plausible justification caused shockwaves. I was contacted by the designated amnesty monitor who was a member of the London bar. He was gobsmacked. He wanted to know, had the judge given a reason? And later again, has she reversed her decision? Their exclusion essentially removed the defendant's voice. They would have been monitoring proceedings from a particular perspective. Their focus would have been different to that of journalists. They would have amplified what they saw as injustices. Now, what could we see? We had a view of the court, uh, the judge at all times, the lawyers at all times. On the wall opposite, we could see Jennifer, Julian's partner, Stella, uh, a couple of other WikiLeaks staff members and, and Kristen. And on the other side um, were individuals possibly connected to the prosecution. On, uh, along the far wall behind a glass where we could not see sat Julian. We only got a glimpse of him for a second as he entered um, uh, the beginning of each session. I wrote to the Justice Department to say, look, um, at the beginning of each session, the host says, please be aware you may not see the defendant at all times. Well, this split second was not adequate. And I put to them, why it was important that we see more of him to see whether, when, how often and how successfully he communicated with his lawyers. We did start to see him more often. Um, the, the court obviously developed a system whereby before re-examining a witness, after the cross-examination, the court would break for five or ten minutes before uh, for def defence lawyers to consult their client. He had to crouch or kneel down um, on the ground to talk through a slit in the bottom of the glass. Now, when you consider the complexity of the case that had to be defended and the opportunity for confidential communication between the prosecution and their client throughout the hearings, not to mention in the lead up to the hearings, this was um, a, a pitiful concession to justice. As in February, on a couple of occasions, the judge read out a pre-prepared decision laying out her reasons, um, immediately following arguments for and against by the lawyers. Now, they read okay for the court record, but for those observing, it was surreal, farcical, and there seemed to be little room for doubt that the opportunity to argue the case had been pointless. Now, um, I'd like to bring Jennifer in at this point um, of course, this case is inherently political and we can talk more about the arguments, but this is an unprecedented case. Um, the first time in the history of the United States that a publisher has been sought for prosecution under the Espionage Act. Uh, it is a case in which we argue this is a political offence. It is on its face political. It is the espionage, which is a typical political offence under international law, which should never be, you should never face extradition for this. But of course, also the political motivation that we heard a lot about during the proceedings, both in terms of the Trump administration's clear decision after Obama had decided not to prosecute Julian, there was no indictment under the Obama administration, which was consistent with Eric Holder, then Attorney General's public statements that no journalist would go to prison on his watch. Um, so we know that this is a Trump administration initiative. We know that the Trump administration calls the press the enemy of the people. We know that this has been driven and was driven by Mike Pompeo's initial statement saying we will take WikiLeaks down. So I think there are many people are speculating and hoping that with the change of administration, um, if there is a change of administration, that it may 
signal a, perhaps a different approach or one that might uh, return to what we saw under Obama where Chelsea Manning was commuted and there was no indictment. Um, but that remains to be seen. And, and from, from our point of view, this process, this is a, in, this, there's an indictment, we have an extradition request. And so we have to just work on the basis that this is going to continue. Okay, um, Jen, could you summarise the US case for us and the evidence that they presented? Well, I think the interesting thing that people um, perhaps who are observing the proceedings is, is that we have a US indictment, one which we say fundamentally misrepresents the facts. The only evidence put by the United States was uh, affidavit evidence from a US prosecutor who didn't come to be cross-examined. So that evidence was untested. Uh, the only live evidence we had from the US prosecution were psychiatric, um, their psychiatric experts who tried to pick apart what, you know, what we've been saying. Um, and of course, I think it's really important, the psychiatric evidence is really important because uh, many of you may not have seen the news that Julian has since been diagnosed with autism. Uh, with Asperger's, that he is on the spectrum, which many of us who have worked with him for many of years um, aren't, weren't particularly surprised by that diagnosis. Um, and of course, the, the impact, the psychiatric impact of extradition being held in a supermax prison, likely being held under what, what we have um, had evidence of, of special administrative measures, which is effectively incommunicado detention. And I just think that people really need to understand the, the prison conditions and, and the, the prospects that Julian is facing. So, um, you know, he is facing 175 years in prison, uh, effectively will be held in, uh, in incommunicado detention under the kinds of measures that you see imposed upon terrorists. And this is all happening in the world's greatest democracy. Indeed. Uh, you mentioned these two psychiatrists that uh, appeared for cross-examination, and I have to say that was one of the astonishing moments for me when one of them was asked under cross-examination by uh, Fitzgerald, um, uh, would Julian's depression worsen? Would it become more severe under those conditions and therefore would, you know, he'd, he'd be a higher suicide uh, risk? And he uh, kept sidestepping around that. But finally, he admitted that if you um, were to take away the things that make a difference are the things that give people hope. So connection with his family, um, phone calls to Samaritans. And Fitzgerald put to him, if those things are taken away, is his depression likely to worsen and therefore would he have? And there was a very, very long pause and we could only see the back of his head. I would have liked to have seen his face. And you probably remember that moment, Jen, because at the end of this very long pause, there was a gasp and you realised the guy was holding his breath because his Hippocratic oath was conflicting. I think that's what was happening. He was wondering how the hell he was going to answer this question without unravelling the work he had done. Um, so that, that was a very telling moment for me and he didn't answer the question and the judge didn't compel him to answer the question. Well, I think for me personally, I was sitting with um, Julian's partner throughout the hearing and one of the more difficult parts of the evidence for her to hear and to, to sit with her to hear this evidence was, was the evidence that we heard about Julian's preparedness to commit suicide. Um, 
and the likelihood that he would commit suicide if he's extradited. Uh, the fact that he's made a will, that he's written goodbye letters, that he's he has taken measures in prison and been sanctioned in prison for concealing razors. Um, this, I think, was it was very hard for her to hear um, and very hard hard for me to, to hear, actually. But, and I, but I think it's important that people hear it because this is the impact that this, this case is having on your colleague and member who is who has won the Walkley Award for Most Outstanding Contribution to Journalism, who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for these publications. This is the impact that this process is having on him and the, the prospect of what he faces if he is returned to the United States, and of course we're doing everything we can to stop that, is, is he talks about dying and, and, and taking his own life um, and that it's an effective death sentence because even if he even if he somehow survives the process, then then he's facing effective life in prison under incommunicado in, in, in detention. And I don't even know how much how much starker does it need to get. Um, Jennifer, the um, U.S. attorney Kromberg, uh, and and they were relying that the prosecution was re relying on all his depositions, really painted this um, facility as some sort of holiday resort with activities and uh, one thing and another. The very final witness for the defence, um, the attorney who was was very pregnant because we saw when she stood up for the judge, she was mm. uh, about to have, have a baby. Um, she talked about her client who was extradited from um, the UK. And I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about her evidence because she said something uh, critical for me and that was that uh, the uh, US gave certain undertakings to the UK in order for, the, for him to be extradited and they reneged on those undertakings. That's right. So the US often gives extradition, uh, gives undertakings with respect to the treatment of prisoners once in the United States in order to be able to ensure their extradition. Um, this happened in the case of Abu Hamza. It's happened in other cases that my colleagues worked on uh, from other European countries. And the US has routinely disregarded those assurances. I just think the important thing is to note that um, being held in a supermax prison and being placed under special administrative measures, which is what will happen to Julian um, and is what happens to the majority of Espionage Act um, de defendants, is that you are in incommunicado detention. You cannot even communicate with your lawyers um, without being under surveillance. You do not have the same kind of contact with the outside world. The you know legal defense groups in the United States have called it the the blackest dark hole of the U.S. prison system. I mean, this is this is no. This is this is how serious it is. Um, and you know, we talk. I've talked a lot historically about the free speech implications. And I really think it's important we talk about that and some of the some of the points that were made by the prosecution during the course of the hearing. But I don't think that MEAA members have previously heard about the reality of the prison conditions that Julian is going to face, the reality of the process he's going to face. Not only will he be held in that kind of detention, we heard evidence from Clive Stafford Smith during the course of the proceedings about the way in which the US runs conspiracy cases and the breadth of the criminal case that's being undertaken. The fact he's now facing new allegations under the second superseding indictment that were introduced just weeks before the hearing when we had finished our written submissions, the evidence was in, and suddenly the US is starting to trying to shore up its case, expanding the allegations, 
Um, we read about it in the media, a press release from the Department of Justice. It wasn't served on uh, our defence team till much later. Initially, the United States was saying, well, this won't make any difference to the case. So it's just, you know, new factual, it's just a new factual background to the, indict the existing indictment. After we agreed that we wouldn't adjourn the proceedings so that Julian shouldn't spend any more time in prison, the US then decided that actually, no, it could form, these new allegations could form the basis of new criminal allegations in the United States. So even if all of the Manning-related um, accusations and, and parts of the indictment were refused in terms of extradition, the judge could still order his extradition on this new, these new allegations. These are allegations we haven't even had time to look at, consider, and we were prevented from putting evidence in in response to. So the process itself, I mean, it's hard to know where to begin in terms of the abusive process this is, that this entire prosecution is, the, the abuse of the process to punish a prosecutor in this way, to the point where he is con contemplating, seriously contemplating suicide. This is, uh, it's hard to believe this is even happening first to an Australian citizen in the UK at the behest of the United States. Um, Jennifer, we didn't hear anything about the new allegations in court. And, and the very first thing the judge did was to refuse an adjournment so that the defence could prepare uh, a defence mm -hmm. against these um, allegations. So how is she going to take them into account in, I mean, what will happen to those allegations? How will she factor them in, in into her decision? And what, no. what were they? What were they? Um, so the, the new allegations expand the um, conspiracy to commit computer intrusion um, allegations to a broader period starting from 2009 to 2015, uh, making all kinds of vague accusations, which um, frankly, we haven't even had time to look at, but we know just on their face are incredibly vague and, and unsubstantiated uh, accusations of conspiracy with uh, hacking groups like Anonymous. Um, also, we saw reference to Sarah Harrison, to, this, to the fact that WikiLeaks assisted Snowden. Um, these kinds of allegations that were included in this new superseding indictment, of course, again, like we said, the prosecutors initially told us it was just background and then later told us, actually, no, this could form the basis for standalone criminal accusations once he's returned to the United States. Um, this process is um, highly unusual and unprecedented. As you heard from our lead defence counsel, Mark Summers, Mary, in the hearing, he said, None of us in the collective experience on the, on the defence team, which is extensive, um, have ever been in a situation where just weeks before a complicated evidential hearing is about to take place, when all of the legal submissions have been made, the requesting government sends, suddenly sends a new superseding indictment. Um, not only that, we were refused an adjournment once we understood the consequences of the indictment, once we were notified of the consequences of the indictment, we're not allowed to put in evidence. And of course, we made an application that she should excise those new ac accusations that they shouldn't be part of the case. So it remains to be seen what she will do with it. But as I said, this is entirely unprecedented. So how that will play out in the judgment and then a subsequent appeal remains to be seen. So the point that the prosecution kept making is that this is an ongoing investigation and so that this was quite normal for them to come up with a further evidence. What I'm wondering is how uh, the UK court can decide to extradite Julian uh, knowing that the investigations ongoing and the not just the evidence and the allegations but the charges may change once he gets uh, once he's on US soil. Of course, that is the risk. 
And again, it shows the, the abusive nature of this process. Um, Julian has not had the opportunity to even consider that new su second superseding indictment. It was served on him the morning he turned up at court for the hearing on the 7th of September. So he hadn't even seen or read the indictment or been formally served with it and arrested on it until the morning he turned up at court. Um, again, all I can say is it, it just goes to show how problematic this process is. Started on the ground. 
Listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Celebrate a family friendly New Year's Eve in Yarra. Join us at Edinburgh Gardens North Fitzroy and Barclay Gardens in Richmond for kids' games, sports competitions, lighting installations, relaxed live music and an outdoor cinema. This free, family-friendly event kicks off at both parks at 12 midday. Bring a picnic and ring in the new year with family and friends. Check out the full program at yarracity.vic.gov.au. And remember, City of Yarra Park streets and public spaces are alcohol-free on New Year's Eve. The City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast for this week. Happy Christmas and join me on New Year for another in the Solidarity Breakfast summer season. Everybody needs some 